John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12 will be our passage this morning. And it's a, a healing you know well where Christ heals a blind man who was blind from birth. It's a most extraordinary story. The entire chapter is the whole story. We're going to deal just with the, the miracle today. John chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. The apostle writes, as he passed, he being Christ, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. The neighbors and and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how are your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good and so gracious that you take Blind sinners like us, and you give us sight. We know, Lord, that we cannot see you. We cannot see Christ. We cannot see our need to be saved unless you give us the ability to see. We know, Lord, that we cannot continue in this walk unless you continue daily to enable us to see. So we ask that you do that this morning, that you would glorify yourself by enabling us, helping us, encouraging us to see Christ, that he would be our vision this morning, this day, and forever. Show us him, I pray, that we might hear your word and respond to it correctly. We want to see Christ as he really is. Do that great work, I pray, here for us, for your glory. Christ's name, amen. Okay. You feel blind a lot? You feel blind in Christ a lot? It's tough at times. It's tough going through life trying to keep your eyes fixed on the hope to be brought to us at the revelation of Christ, as the Bible says, to fix your eyes on Christ. And yet we know that when we do, when we trust and obey and we pursue Christ because we love him, that this brings honor and glory to God, and this is the life that we're supposed to live. And we're going to see that this morning here in this incredible miracle that takes place and in this man's life. Jesus, in chapter 8, he was in the temple, and he's preaching and he's teaching in the temple. And in the temple, he says a couple of things, one of which took them off guard. One, he says, I am the light of the world. He said, come and follow me, and I'll give you eternal life. And then as we saw last week, he said, I am. He takes the the great divine name of God. Now, he's talking to people who would stake their entire hope upon the promises made to Abraham and the laws of Moses. 
And so he's going against the culture, he's going against their religion, he's going against their understanding of God and salvation. And so rather than telling them a parable in, in chapter 9, he actually does a miracle to have a living parable. And he goes to this man who was born blind and he gives him the ability to see. And in giving him the ability to see, he's showing the world. It's not just this man. It's not just the neighbors. He's showing the world for all time because we have it here in the Bible that Jesus Christ has the power to give sight and not just physical sight, but spiritual sight because we're all blind. None of us can see unless he comes and says, I will make you see. You know, there's no other miracle like this in the Bible. In fact, there's no other miracle like this that wasn't in the Old Testament. It wasn't in antiquity. It wasn't by any of the disciples. Jesus Christ had the exclusive privilege to give people their sight. Why? Because he's the Messiah. And he's the only one that can give us spiritual eyes because we're spiritually blind. And so the miracles of sight giving And the miracle here of Jesus actually giving sight to a man who had been born blind, that's his miracle, testifying to him. Centuries earlier, the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 42, the father was now speaking of the son. Listen, this is centuries before Jesus came to earth. The father said of the son, I will give you, Jesus, to be a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, listen, saints, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and to release from the prison those who sit in darkness. So I want to look this morning at this incredible teaching on the light and Jesus Christ being the light of the world. And I want to see it in light of our being blind and born in sin. And that we all, at some point in time, we were sitting in dungeons awaiting our sentence and awaiting condemnation. And if you know Christ, Christ came to you and he said, I am the light of the world. I am the great I am. Come and follow me. And you did. You did, and how glorious that is. Let's look at the light here, and let's look at it in four ways. One, let's look at light's purpose. Let's look at light's workers. Let's look at light's obedience. Let's look at light's testimony. Light's purpose is to display the works of God. This is real simple. Light's workers, those who are sent by God. Light's obedience, God working through faith. And lastly, light's testimony, it's to testify that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Let's look at the first point, light's purpose, to display the works of God. Look at verse 1 again in John chapter 9. The purpose of this light, Jesus gives us the answer. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the giving of sight is for Christ. And the only time the Bible says that he gives sight to a man born blind is right here. And so we have a precedent-setting miracle taking place before us. We also get a glimpse of the Jewish interpretation of suffering and sin. And they had concluded that if you were experiencing some suffering in your life, that you did something. They attached all suffering to a personal sin. Either you or your parents. It was one or the two. And so they wrongly conclude, they look at this blind man who was born blind, they said, well, who sinned? Lord, did he sin in the womb? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Now, we can make a few general statements about this. One, all suffering in general is a result of sin in general. All suffering is a result of the fall. So we can make that 
true statement. We can also say that oftentimes we suffer as a result of our personal actions, right? The things that we do bring suffering into our life. We see that in the Old Testament. The Israelites suffered for 40 years in the desert because of their sin. The, the, uh, both Israel and Judah suffered from the Assyrian onslaught and the Babylonian onslaught because of their sin. We even see, we see the, the outpouring of the, the consequences in the life of David and Bathsheba. And so personal sin can lead to suffering. We also can go and agree with them that oftentimes the sins of our parents are born upon the children, and it works through different generations. We see that today as mothers drink and use drugs in the middle of their pregnancy and have children that are born with fetal alcohol syndrome. We see it that children are subject to, to broken homes. We see how their lives are shaken by that. So we see all these things, and there, there's some truth in what the disciples are saying, but they're fundamentally wrong in that there are other things that are taking place, much bigger things that are taking place. And so Jesus exposes their error. There isn't always a direct link, my beloved, so be careful with your personal suffering and a personal sin. There may be. I would counsel you to pray upon that and seek counsel, but it's not always the case. We live in a fallen world. We were born, in, born into a fallen world. And what we see here is that if we make that conclusion about ourselves or others, we may become like Job's friends. Remember what he said of his friends? Miserable comforters are you. Because they, Job was suffering greatly. And they came to Job and they kept saying, just confess your sin already and be done with this. Confess your sin. And we know from the prologue in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 that Job's suffering was not a result of his personal sin. What did God say of Job? There is no one more righteous on earth than he and so we know that God was, was using these tragedies in Job's life to increase his faith and to draw him into the Father. And he did, and that worked. Our Lord here reveals another option. Look at verse 3. He says, The man was born blind, not because of his parents, not because of his sin. Verse 3, that the works of God might be displayed in him. That God would do a work with a man that was born in blind, born blind in darkness, could not see. And he would use Christ to enable this man to see for the first time light and people, his own family, to see the temple and to see his country. And when we get to verse 35, which we will next week, we see that this giving of the physical sight, it was just a precursor to God, to Christ coming to him and actually giving him spiritual eyes to see and faith to believe and salvation. So we're just getting a taste here of the spiritual the greater purpose of this man's blindness was to display the glory of God. You say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that God caused him to be blind? Did God make him blind? Maybe. We don't know. What we do know is the man was born into a fallen world. And what we do know is that God's going to use his son's power to supernaturally reverse the effects of the fall. This man was born blind into a fallen world, and Christ is going to come to him, and he's going to give him sight and reverse the effects of sin and disobedience. It's going to point to Christ and His power. What makes this passage so extraordinary for us, or should, it points to Christ and His power to come to you and reverse the effects of the fall. Because of sin, you cannot see apart from Jesus Christ. And if you do not know Christ this morning, then you are blind. You think you can see. You think you understand. You think you know eternal truths and God and yourself and man and eternity. The Bible says clearly, you are blind, and Christ must enable you to see if you're going to see anything, and he has that power. 
And that's being displayed here in the parable of this man, this living parable for us. He desires us, simply saints, to see that as a result of the fall, we cannot see. We are spiritually blind. That through Adam, sin entered through the one man, Adam, and it infected everyone. Everyone enters life sown in iniquity in their mother's wombs. And so you come into the world blind. You cannot see. And therefore, we, like this blind man, we need Jesus to come to us. He must come to us. He must touch us. He must give us sight that we might see and believe, that we might know that that God is real. And for many, that's just the starting place, that he's real, that he's powerful. We, We must be able to see that he is actually holy and that he has a holy standard. We must be able to see that we are unholy through and through. And that, but that's not the end. He wants us to see clearly that because of our, his righteousness and his love and because of our sin, he sends Christ to make us holy and to redeem us. These are things that God must enable us to see, that if we don't put our trust in Jesus Christ, if we don't put our faith in him, then darkness will be our, our end. Death will be our end. That's how we're born. We're born into death, and we will remain in death unless Christ comes to us. I had Pastor Kurt read for our call to worship from Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be light, and that light came in, and it overcame the darkness in creation. The very beginning of the entire story of God and man in Genesis chapter 1 is being revealed here spiritually through Christ, where he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to what? To be the light of the world. For what purpose? to overcome the darkness of the human heart, that Christ might come, that Christ might be the light and come to you and to me and everyone who repents and believes and give them light that they might see. He must do this great work if anyone is to see. He must. No one comes to this natural. I learned last week that rabbits are born blind. You probably already knew that. I did not. They're born blind. For the first seven to ten days of their life, their eyes are sealed shut. They can't see anything. But after seven to ten days, God has made them in such a miraculous way that the eyelids begin to open and they begin to see. It's not like that with us, my beloved. We are born blind and we stay blind unless God comes directly to us and makes us alive. I know for many in the evangelical circles, they, they teach and they believe in this thing called the age of accountability that somehow we are born blind but we remain innocent until a particular age and God will not judge anybody under a particular age. That's nowhere in the Bible, by the way. I would argue that it's a lie, that you are born blind and you stay blind, and until Christ comes and enables you to see, you will, you will justify and rationalize your sin all the way into the grave. We need Christ to come to us, Christ to anoint our eyes, and Christ to enable us to see. He must give us that sight if we are to live. And so he displays that power here, He displays it for us, for them, for us in this story, that he did that work on this man's physical eyes, and he's saying, I can do the same thing for you spiritually. So the purpose of this light is to display the glory of God, the works of God. It was displayed here and to be displayed for us. So the second question that I have for you is, how is God's work to be displayed now that Christ has ascended? I mean, Christ is no longer here. So how is God going to display his works, his majesty, and his glory with Christ now sitting in his right hand? Second point, light's workers. Who are they? Those sent by God. Look at verses 4 and 5. This might be a troubling verse for some of you. 
Verses 4 and 5, Jesus continues. He says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Christ again declares himself again being the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. As long as I'm here, I will be that light. In fact, his entire ministry, his entire ministry was one of overcoming darkness. Right? And he comes in, he begins to teach, and he overcomes the darkness of ignorance. He begins to heal, and he overcomes the darkness of injury and disease and blindness. He comes in, and through his life and through his death and through his resurrection and his ascension and ascending the Holy Spirit, all his entire ministry is to overcome the darkness of our condition. That's what he was here for. He is the ultimate worker of light, the consummate worker of light. But Then you read verse 4 again, and it says something quite interesting. Jesus does not say, I must work the works of the one who sent me. He uses the plural pronoun we. And he says, we must work the, one, work the works of him who sent me. Who's the we? So some of you say, well, <clears throat> he must be talking just about the disciples. But he's not. So he must be talking about those in the early church. He's not. When Jesus says we, he says, I need to work and you need to work, you being the church. We need to work. And he's calling us into that. It's not Christ without us, and it's not us without Christ. We together are going to do the works of God who sent Christ. His disciples, that's us. His church. If you know Christ, that's us. Now, they, they always remain God's work. Let's not confuse that. They're always His works. But just as He worked miraculously through His Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit, so too when Christ ascended, what did He do? He sent the Holy Spirit to come to us and indwell us so that what? We might work. That we might do the work of Jesus Christ. The commission of the one sent, Jesus Christ, was to die and rise again. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, redeem many who would what? Would continue His work. His work continues today. 2,000 years later, the church, the real church, the true church is still working the works of God. It is worth an amen. Thank you, sister. Jesus Christ said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will what? You will bear much fruit. You will bear much fruit from your work. He said, look at verse 4 again, we must We must work the works of him who sent me. You know what that means, my beloved? Working for God in the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit, it's not optional. Did you all hear me say that? I sounded like I was from Tennessee there. Did you all hear me say that? I don't know where that came from. It is not optional for us to not do the works of God. We must. For Jesus here, it's interesting He says, while it is day, now his day is rapidly approaching to end here. He's about six months away from his his crucifixion. But he's going to ascend, and then he's going to send the Holy Spirit to dwell in us that we might continue working. Every believer, not just the disciples, not just the early church, every believer throughout the history of the church has been called and equipped by God to do this great work. Now, for some of you, it is such a great joy. You say, I love doing the work of God. I mean, the Holy Spirit, you are saved, and the Holy Spirit has got a hold of you. And your life now is in service to the living God. And that's revealed in in your thoughts and your desires and how you spend your time. You long to share the gospel with the lost. 
You long to grow in holiness by reading your Bible and praying and coming to church. You, you love encouraging your brothers and sisters in Christ, coming alongside of them. You love engaging in the ministry that God has called and equipped you to do. And you've all been called and you've all been equipped to do ministry of some kind. And you revel in that and you enjoy it and you know, you know that your hours are short and that you will stand before God as a steward before his master to give an account for your ministry and your life and you love that. It puts an urgency on you. Others read this and they find it a strange verse, maybe even a verse they don't like all that much and say, well, don't, don't the works belong to God alone? They are ultimately his, yes. You say, well, Aren't the works something you're supposed to be doing? I mean, you're hired. You're the pastor. You're the preacher. Isn't that a, a teacher's job? When he says we, Christ means him and the pastors. It's not. We can't get out of it that way. In fact, I'm an, I'll read to you Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. <clears throat> the majority of the work to be done is by the body of Christ. I mean, you are many. You are equipped. You are gifted to do much work. Paul said in Ephesians 4.11, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers for what purpose? Verse 12, to equip God's people for works of service. If the body of Christ does not work, then the body is weak. But when the body of Christ says, we are going to serve with Jesus, then the body becomes brilliantly strong, unstoppable. We know that. Not even the gates of Hades can prevail against the church. In other words, if you're truly saved and I pray that you are, work is not an option. Now, if you're lazy as a saint, it doesn't mean you lose your salvation. You are saved in Christ by his grace, not a result of works, what you do or what you do not do, okay? So let's get that straight. But, but if you are saved and you're not serving, you're not working, you're not growing in holiness, and you're not bearing fruit, what is wrong? I mean, why? Why that life? There's such a better life for you in Christ, a life that he desires for you. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, these are works that he prepared for you before the foundations of the world for you to walk in and to do. Isn't that amazing? That before anything ever was, God was thinking about you. He was thinking how he was going to save you. He was thinking about how he was going to equip you. And he was thinking about the works he was going to have you do. Amazing. I have... A beautiful, my office, I, I get to look out my backyard, and it's right up to a forest, and there are birds out there, and they work hard to build nests. It's amazing. I mean, they work hard. They're just busy, busy, busy. Godly fathers know that it is right for them to work hard to, to support their wife and their children. Godly mothers know that it's, it's right for them to work to create a home, to cultivate a home. As employees, most of you, I would argue, you understand that it's right to go to work and to honor your employer and to work hard for your paycheck. We get it in all these areas, except the church at times, where we think, well, this is just a place where we go and we consume and we get and we, and we feed, but we don't give back. We don't minister. We don't work for God. If we are to be expected to, to work as fathers and as mothers and employees, if the birds are expected to build their nest and work, then, then we too, my beloved, are to work. We can't be unproductive. 
It's not right to not serve. It's not right to not minister. It's not right to not love as Christ has called us to love. And our work is born out of our love, our love for him, our love for one another, our love for the lost. Now, some of you who are biblically savvy, because I've had this one thrown at me, you'll, you'll go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10, where Paul says this, I have entered God's rest and have also rested from my works as God did his. You'll say, see, that's why I don't work, pastor. I've entered my rest. God has rested. I'm resting. I don't need to work. And maybe you'll even say, I've been saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. My works are not based, my salvation is not based upon my works, and I will say to you, amen, amen. You cannot work for your salvation. You cannot work for your salvation. Okay. But if you would read the next verse in Ephesians 4, verse 11, the apostle says this, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall. Let us work in that rest, or even better yet. I think even more powerful, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, we're told that through the blood of Christ, we have been set free from what? From dead works. We've been set free from dead works to serve the living God. What are those dead works? The dead works are all those things you're trying to do to be saved. All the things you try to do to get into God's good graces. The blood of Christ sets us free from that, not to be lazy, not to do nothing, not to just serve ourselves or live our life any way we see fit, We've been set free from those dead works for what purpose? To serve the living God, to do the work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, out of love. That's a glorious life. That's the life that I want. That's the life I want for you, saints, that we serve because of our love for Christ and the grace that he poured out. We serve because of what Christ did on the cross for us. And we, we sing songs like that, and we ask Christ to be our vision, and we gaze upon him and his majesty and his beauty and all the love that we have for him. We say, I must serve him. I must. You can't, can't look upon Christ honestly with a saved heart and not want to bow down and worship and say, send me. I'll work. I'll serve. What do you want me to do? Some of you say, well, I want to work. I don't even know what this work is. Then I failed as a pastor in teaching this. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have lists in the Bible of certain gifts and certain talents given to us. Wisdom, work with your wisdom, the knowledge, work with that, your faith, your discernment, service, teaching, encouragement. Some of you are amazing encouragers. I don't have that gift, but boy, I sure love it when someone encourages me. Giving leading, mercy, so many gifts poured out in the church. And the Bible says clearly they're all for the common good, all for the building up of the body. Why? That we might serve better, that we might serve together. You say, well, that list is too long. It's too long for me. Let's make it more fundamental then. What is this work of God? We already looked at this, remember, in John chapter 6. Remember when Jesus was in Capernaum and the disciples asked him, what is the work of the Lord? They said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Are you ready? Let's keep it real simple. That you believe in him who he has sent. You have faith in the son. That's it. I want to know how to work according to the Bible. What are the works of God? Believe in the son. Trust in Christ and follow him. And he will show you. You I get so tired of these these gift surveys and these teachings on, well, what do you have? Well, I have knowledge and I have discernment. Well, I'm discerning you don't have knowledge. Well, I mean, these things are crazy at times when Christ is saying, here's the work of God. Follow me, know me, love me. 
and I'll show you. I'll show you what to do and I'll show you what not to do. I'll show you the gifts you have and the gifts you don't have. It's faith in the Son, putting all your trust in Him. Every day, working out your salvation in Him. Every day, going back and saying, Lord, what would you have me do this day? I want to walk in faith, not by sight. I want to walk today following Christ. What would you have me do? Every day, going back to the Word of God and knowing God better and knowing yourself better and what you are to do, how you are to live, your ministry, your gifts, your talents. Jesus says we are his workers and we must do this work. I want you to notice also that this verse, verse 4 gives us a real urgency to this. Look again. It says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, in our Lord's own life, we're talking about six months before he, he meets that, the, the worst day, right? The unprecedented darkness when he is surrendered over to um, the Sanhedrin and then to Pilate and then to the cross, and so the night was coming for him when he was not going to be able to work as a man on earth any longer. He was going to ascend into heaven. So let me ask you this. How many months do you have to serve the living God? How many months do you have? Don't answer because you don't know. You have no idea. None of us do. What we do know is this. All of us only have months. Even if you're young, listen. If you're really young, I know you think you've got years and years and years in front of you. You have no idea. You have months, and that's it, months to serve the living God. When the night comes for you, in Christ, I pray you know Christ. If you don't, then judgment awaits you. It's horrible. But when the night comes for you, and you're taken from this place, and you're brought into the presence of God, what a glorious, what a glorious time for you. I mean, it is. The thought of it is so glorious. But you must know this you at that point in time will not be able to work for the gospel any longer. You won't be able to. That time will end for you. No more opportunities for you to minister to the needy. No more opportunities to come to the poor and help them. No more for you coming into the body of Christ and coming along a brother or coming alongside a sister and giving them a word of encouragement, or boosting them up or, or rebuking them or bringing them along. No more opportunities to share the gospel with the lost once you leave this place. All those things that we can do now, we won't do when our night comes. We must work while it is day. So you say, well, when is that? That's right now. That's right now. It's, it's, not, it's not tomorrow because you don't know that you have tomorrow. And it's not next week. And it's not next month when things settle down. And it's not next year when your job works out. And it's not in the next two years when you get your housing situation figured out. Those are all horrible things to say, this is why I will not work for God or this is why I cannot work for God. You have months. Some of you may only have days to do the work of the Lord. And then you'll enter into his presence. The Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, he put it well when he said this. I preach as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. That's glorious. I preach as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. Is that how you live? You say, well, I'm not a preacher. That's not what I mean. Do you live each and every day as a dying man to dying men, sharing the gospel, growing in holiness, loving your brothers and sisters, working the work that you've been 
called and equipped to do. Baxter knew. He didn't know when he was going to go, but he knew that when he goes, after death, then comes judgment. And you say, well, I'm saved by God's grace. I will not come before the great white throne, and by his grace you will not. But you will be judged. Believers are judged too. I know it's not something talked about in the evangelical church, but the Bible teaches clearly that we'll be judged according to the works of our life. How did we live in Christ? Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 3, 13. He says, each one's work, the work of the body, will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. He continues, he says, listen, you know, if you're saved by grace and you've done no good work, you'll enter, you'll enter heaven by the very flames of hell. That's not a good way to go in. I'm so thankful, though, that Jesus is so gracious with us that he brings you in anyway because he chose you. You're his. You belong to him. But don't we want to enter into eternity with a better testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit in our life? I mean, don't we want to go into to enter the presence of God that God might look back and say, look at what I did with that person. Look at the power of the Holy Spirit in that life. Look at their testimony. Look at their love. Look at the grace that came through their hands and the majesty that came out of their lips. Look at that. Remember, and then the crown's going to be placed upon your head and you'll say, no way, and you'll throw at the feet of Christ because it's because of Him. Don't you want to go in like that? I want to go in like that. I don't want to go in smoking, you know, just barely getting in. I don't want that. I hope you don't. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In order for your light to shine, you've got to work. It's simple. In order for your light to shine before such, such men, fruit must be born in your life. They can see your good work, and they'll see that, and they'll do what? They'll glorify God. Maybe not now, but they will. Maybe not now. While there's still breath in our lungs, while we as a church still have the power of the Holy Spirit, while that lampstand has not been taken away, we are to work. All right. So the purpose of the work is to display the glory of God. Purpose of this light. The light's workers, that's us. That's you, that's me. That's God's church throughout the world. Working with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not without Him, but with Him. Third question for you, what is the vehicle then of this work? If they are the works of God, then how do they come to the world through us? Point number three, light's obedience. God works through faith. Look at verses six and seven. Having said these things, this is Jesus he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. This is weird. I mean, this is weird. Okay, don't be, don't be bothered if you think it's weird because it is. I mean, a little bit of mud, a little bit of saliva. And the commentaries, there are, there are articles and articles on the medicinal qualities of the, of the spit of Jesus Christ and the potential, this mud that was concocted, you can read up on that own, your own. I don't think that has anything to do with this story. This mud that he anoints the eyes with, some of the early church fathers, they, they draw back on Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and they're saying, he formed him then, and now Christ is reforming him, recreating him. I think there's some credence in that, but I still don't think that's why it's here. Draw on that, that's healthy, that's good meat. I believe simply that 
the mud was put on this man's face for this man's benefit. I think it was for him. If this man was blind, he could not see that deprivation of sight his whole life. And so what does Jesus do? He takes mud and he, and he, and he, he, he uh, kneads it together and then he places it on this man's eyes so this man can feel it. This man can smell it. Christ has done something to his face. And then he tells the man, go work. You say, what do you mean? He tells the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. The, the, the mud's there, but he still can't see. In order for the full effect to have its power, this man had to go do something. He actually had to go wash the mud off in the pool of Siloam. He had to go, he had to wash. He was commanded. Why? I mean, why did Jesus do this here? Why did he make this man, this blind man, born blind, a beggar, why did he make him go through this extra hoop to receive his sight? We know, and we know now, we've seen enough of Jesus' power and miracles in this gospel. Jesus didn't have to use mud. He didn't have to touch this man's face. Jesus didn't have to speak. Jesus could have just, in his power, had given the man sight, doing nothing. So why here? Why this extra work? Why does he... Why does he send the man to the pool of Siloam? You remember that pool? Well, I pray you do. You remember that was the pool, the Feast of Tabernacle, where the priest would go and take the golden pitcher, and he'd take the water, and he'd bring it back to the altar, and he poured it on the altar. That was their morning purification ceremony, using the water. Remember that? That pool, and John actually tells us this. John is teaching us the pool of Siloam. Siloam means the sent one, or one who is sent. Now, the pool was at the bottom of the hill upon which the temple sat. And it was fed by a spring, the Keon Spring. And it would actually travel through right by the temple and then all the way down to the bottom of this hill. And the, the imagery is extraordinary. What he's saying, he said, go to that pool of the one scent because the one scent is Christ. And the water that's flowing, just like it's coming out of that temple from the Father, will come to you. Go and wash and see. And he wants this man to know two things fundamentally. One, that Jesus Christ is saying, I am the one that sent. I'm the one that distributes the blessings from my Father. You want blessings from my Father's house? They come through me. He is the means. Number one. Number two, though, he wants this man to know and for all saints to know that that power is only given to those people who actively pursue it in faith, right? That there's an active faith here, an active belief. Look again at verse 7. He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Commandment, required, obedience. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed, and what happened? He came back seen. He came back seen. He gave this man faith. This man's faith worked into action. This action led to a miracle. This miracle led to the glorification of God. It's incredible. Jesus did the miracle. He did the miracle. It was, it was Christ's power. But he did it through this man's faith and this man's obedience and this man's work. The man had to work. In fact, he had to work on the Sabbath day. We'll look at that next week. He had to actually break the Sabbath to go and do this. In fact, we're going to see next week when he gets to verse 32, he testifies the Pharisees to the Pharisees. In verse 32, he says, Never, the blind man says to the Pharisees, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. All true faith, all true faith in anything, my beloved, requires obedience. It does. You cannot have true faith without obedience. 
You know, as a pilot, I always find it amazing when people who are afraid to fly, thinking they're going to die, actually get onto an airplane. I do. I find it fascinating. I think personally, if I'm afraid to fly, and if I think I, if I get on that airplane, I'm going to crash and die, I'm not getting on the airplane. I'm not. And yet I know this, when people do, it reveals a great deal. When someone who's afraid to fly gets on that airplane, they're telling me that their faith in that mode of transportation, in that airplane, and even that pilot who they do not know is greater, it's greater than their faith that is born out of fear. Their faith is being produced. We're seeing that in action. Extraordinary. Loving obedience to Christ is the mark of a genuine saving faith. It is the mark of it. In fact, we know this. James taught this clearly in James chapter 2. He says, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? The answer is what? The answer is no. He went on. He says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And James says, I will show you my faith by my works. The works do not save you, but if you are saved, you will work. James is making that very clear, and so is Jesus Christ right here. This man had faith. He followed Jesus' instructions. Jesus said, go and wash. He went and washed, and he came back seeing. The miracle was born. Blind from birth. What's so imperative for us is to see that this man's physical sight was restored through the power of Christ in obedience. Our spiritual sight is given to us by the power of Christ through obedience, through the faith that God gives us to believe, giving us eyes to see, to see eternal things. You know, before, you know Jesus, before you knew Jesus, you didn't see anything right. I mean, you were blind. You're like those rabbits in day five. You can't see a thing. And then God came to you, and you saw all kinds of things, didn't you? I mean, probably for most of you, the first thing you saw was that, you, that God was real, and that this God that was real now was clearly defined. It wasn't just this vague God or this, this, these multiple gods. It was a real God. You began to see that this God is, is powerful and he's loving and he's holy. And, and then you began to see your own heart. And you, when Christ gave you the eyes to see, you really began to see how sinful you are. Not that you are someone who does sin, but you are a sinner through and through. And you began to see the great gospel that comes to us through Jesus. And you actually saw Christ. And you put your faith in him, and then you believe. And by God's grace, you are working in him. It's all because of the work of God through Christ. Our obedience to do the works of God in the time that he's given us, it's, it's what we were created to do. <laughs> all of creation understands this except man. And that's a pretty sad place. We are last in line when it comes to God's creation, knowing what we're supposed to do. We're last in line. The trees in my backyard, no, they were put there to create oxygen that we might breathe. They didn't get that. The oranges on Nasser's orange tree know that they are to grow into a sweet nectar that we might eat them and enjoy them. I have deer that graze on a hillside next to my house. They're not confused. There are these beautiful red-tailed hawks that grace the treetops. They never look confused, ever. The sun, when it sets at night, 
and it cast that magnificent glow upon all of God's creation at the exact time that God so determines, it's not confused. They all understand they were created to do the works of God to bring God glory. In order for us to do the works of God, to be the light that shines here in this dark place of San Jose, we must obey. We must obey. We must live as we're supposed to live, as we were created to live, as the Bible tells us to live. That means you must take the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. You must take the gifts and the talents and the experiences and the resources that God has blessed you with. And you, you are amazingly blessed. You are. I, I, I look at you, out at you every time I preach and I think we are a small church, but the blessings that God has poured out upon this church are extraordinary. They're extraordinary. You have gifts and you have talents and you have resources beyond measure. And, and you're supposed to use them. You're supposed to use them. You're supposed to take them. We're supposed to take them collectively as a body and use them for the glory of God that we might do his works while it's still day. And it's still day. Today, it's still day. There's work to be done. So let me close with this final thought. What if we do this? I mean, what happens if we do this? If we understand that the purpose of the light is to testify to the works of God, and if we understand that, that we are the ones called to do that work, and, and we understand that in doing that work, it's a call to obedience, it's a call to real faith and real action. What if we do all of that as a church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by our flesh? What if we do that? Let's look at the last point in close. The result will be testifying to the glory of the Son. Light's final point here is its testimony. God works are exercised through us, testifying to Christ, pointing to Christ, revealing Christ. Look at verses 8 through 12. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He looks like him, but he's not the same guy. He kept saying, the man kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how are your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. I don't know where he is. We'll find out next week. What's so extraordinary about this is this man kept testifying. He says, I am the man. I'm the one. I'm the one. I'm the one. What are we supposed to do with these supernatural works of God? I mean, what are we supposed to do when someone is saved by God's grace and brought out of the darkness into the light of Christ? What do we do with this? The neighbors, they didn't know what to do with it. Some are saying, yeah, that's him. No, that's not him. Some of these people knew him from birth, and they knew it was him. And yet, now he sees. What do you do with that? What do you do with the supernatural works of God? Giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, redeeming Sinners who are dead and making them alive. Making people who are so thoroughly unholy, they are so deserving of hell, bringing them into the light and making them holy. What do you do with these works? So difficult for us to believe, isn't it? One, that God can, or two, that God will do these miraculous things. And yet the entire work of salvation is revealed here in these 12 verses. Did you know that? The whole gospel is right here. Let me show you. This man had no capacity to care for himself. 
He had no capacity to find Jesus. He couldn't see Jesus. He couldn't get to Jesus. Jesus had to go to him. We are no different. We know this from John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We know from Romans chapter 3 that no one is good. No one seeks after God. No, not one. No one does. So God must come to us like he came to this man. And it's Jesus who finds the blind man. And it's Jesus who restores his sight. Same for us. The Bible says, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, that we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. You were dead when God made you alive. Dead. Dead people don't do anything but remain dead. So just as with this man here, God must come to us. He must make us alive. It's Jesus who supernaturally acts in this man through faith, enabling this man to go and wash. Not by this man's works is he saved. He's saved by Christ. But in his safe state, he now works. He now obeys. Same for us, Ephesians 2.8. I love this. This is like the evangelical mantra. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone, not as a result of works, lest no man should boast. But then you get to verse 10, and what? And he calls us now in our saved state state to do the works he's commanded and called us to do before the foundations of the world. So you're not saved by works, but you're saved to works. And that means, saints, we must believe This man was called and given the faith to go and wash and obey and believe. We must trust in Christ. We must follow Christ. That means you must believe and you must walk. They must come together. And if you do, you will will become unavoidably, like this blind man, a living testimony to the world of the glory of God. A living testimony saying again and again and again to your neighbors and your family and your friends, I am the man. I am the woman. I am the child. This man's transformation was permanent. It was knowable. It was visible. He could not hide it. He could not hide it, nor would he hide it. His testimony to the Pharisees next week is extraordinary. It should be the same for us. Let me ask you, with your family, with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with your closest friends? Do they know that you were blind and now you see? Do they know? Do they know that you were dead and your sins and transgressions and that God made you alive? Do they know that? Have you told them that? Have you said, I am the man, I'm the woman, I'm the child, I see? Are you that one? You were blind. And if you know Christ, you now see. You were dead. And if you know Christ, he's made you alive. So as you grow in your wisdom and knowledge and in love and grace, as you exercise the works of God in your life through faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as you do these things, you will be noticeable. You will be known. Hated by the world, but loved by Christ. But you'll be known. It's a permanent change. And so as your friends and your coworkers and your family argue about you. Why is he so different now? Why is she so different now? Oh, he's not any different. He's always been the same. It's just acting. This is an act. If you are changed by God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you cannot act these things. This man was blind and now he sees. So to you in Christ, you will be categorically and permanently different in a most glorious way.
you like the blind man, will unequivocally become a living testimony to the world that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, that if you do come and follow him as he said, you will have life. You will testify that he is the great I am. Your life will testify this. Your words will. Your words will. But so will your life, your actions, your love for people, the ministry that you do, your, your, your prayer life, your, your life in the word of God, the holiness that comes from you, the fruit that is born, all of that will testify. So I'll, I'll close on this. Is this your life? Is it? Is this your life, saints? Is your life so permanently changed by the Holy Spirit that you declare to everyone Christ is the light of the world. Is that your life? Now, I'm I'm not saying, are you up here, are you some spiritual superstar? Is there fruit of grace? Is there grace in your life? Because if there's a little bit, then there's a lot more to come. If there's a little bit there, saints, you can't have a little grace from God and not be saved. So you say, yeah, yeah, there's a little bit. I mean, not a lot. I don't jump up and down and say, I'm the man, but I go, I'm the man. I mean, people don't see every day, but they see a little. Take that little and nurture that and grow that. That's that, that little flicker, that little flame. Fan it. right? Fan it with the word of God. Fan it with prayer. Fan it with the church and get that flame blazing so that you will do what this man does, as we'll see next week, putting his life at risk as he goes before the Pharisees. The crowds debated who he is, and he kept saying, I am the man. He says, I am the man. Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. I went and washed and received my sight. I pray our testimony could be so bold as that. We will say that Christ came to us when we were blind, and he anointed us, not with mud, but with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now dwells in you, enabling you, equipping you to be brilliant lights, hard workers for the gospel, while it's still day. I pray you are that man. I pray you're that woman. I pray you're that child. I pray you are. If you're not, if you say, I'm not at all because there's no grace in my life, then by God's grace today, repent and believe in Christ. Right? You can't do the works of God if you're not in Christ. So start there. If you say there's nothing, there's no fruit, there's no testimony, there's no movement, I think I'm still blind, I think I'm still dead, well, today is the day of salvation. Ask God to show you Christ. Ask God to show you your sins and ask God to compel you to repent and compel you to believe today. You say, no, no, I know him. I know, I know him. But boy, I tell you, that light is, it's just barely there, Pastor. And ask God to show you Christ more clearly. Ask God that Christ would be thy vision, thy vision today and every day. That it will grow, your love will grow for him, and that grace in your life will grow. It will, it will. God doesn't want us to be pathetic workers. He didn't save us to just kind of stumble through life. He saved us and empowered us to be glorious members of his kingdom, to do his work, and it's his work. While it's the day, while it is still day, I'm going to pray right now that God would bless us as a church with this understanding, that we'd be encouraged by this blind man who was blind but can now see. 
and that we would know that if we know Christ, we too are just like him. And that we would boldly today or tomorrow, or maybe sometime next week, you will find yourself saying to your coworkers and your family, your neighbors who doubt you and doubt your faith, say, no, no, I, I am that man, I am that woman, I was blind and now I see. And you'll say that in love and grace and humility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask first and foremost that you would enable us to see better. If we know Christ, then we can see. We want our our vision to increase. We want us to see Christ so clearly, Lord, and increase our love for him so much that we not only recognize that we are light sent out, that we are to be the workers, but we would desire it. That there would be a deep hunger in each of us to do whatever it is that God has called us to do, little or big, that we would take those, those, those graces that have been poured out and those talents that have been given and the gifts if they're there and we put them to good use. Lord, time is short. The days are evil. Night is coming soon for each and every one of us. I pray it doesn't sneak up on us. I pray that we would know our months are numbered and in light of that, Lord, that today we'd work for your glory, to display your glory that we as a church today would work the works that you've called us to do. Father, we're so thankful for the work of Christ, that he completed it on the cross for us, that we might not continue to try to work our way into a saving grace, but have grace through him now, and in that saving grace, work and serve and love and minister. How glorious. What a glorious opportunity for your children. Bless us that way, I pray, this day, in Christ's name. Amen.